You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. You know, I've had the great pleasure of being involved kind of on the sidelines with the energy industry for almost 20 years because of the profession I was in, civil engineering, and one of the guys I worked for that really liked to lead some of those efforts, both in terms of the company he was the president CEO of, and then the things he liked to have happen in the marketplace in terms of education, events, and that kind of thing. So I've been following with great interest Uh, the most recent discussions, and I think some misunderstandings about the importance of the fossil fuel energy, oil, gas exploration, coal, all of that kind of thing, because I think there are just some false narratives out there uh, that I think are important for us to kind of peel back a little bit. And so I'm going to start this series about the future of the energy industry and North Dakota's role in it. And I'm so blessed to have with me today a person I I consider a dear friend, and I've gotten to know him over the course of the last 15 to 20 years, incredibly passionate, sharp individual. He's the president of the North Dakota Petroleum Council, my good friend, Ron Ness. Ron, it's great to see you. How are you today? Well, hi, Mike. It's uh, Thanks for having me, first of all, and it's uh, an honor to be your guest today, and it's uh, it's the middle of, of... 2022 already. It, we're almost into July. And what has happened? How has this year gone so fast? And lots of things going on. And certainly energy <laughs> energy has been at the forefront of the discussion, it seems like almost every day, every week of this year. It's unbelievable. And, you know, it would be really easy for us to say, we don't want to talk about this because we could talk about bison football. We could talk about fishing, hunting, our kids. Um, all those kind of things, but this is awfully important, and I sure appreciate your time, Ron. To kind of tee this up, help me understand, and and the listeners of my podcast, what exactly is the North Dakota Petroleum Council and its role in shaping the, the industry, if you will, in North Dakota and beyond? Mike, the Petroleum Council is a private nonprofit trade association that represents our member companies, uh, just like banks have a trade association, teachers have a trade association, so does the oil and gas industry in North Dakota. We've been around since really the discovery of oil in the early 1950s. Uh, We represent more than 600 companies that do business in all aspects of our state's oil and gas industry. And I I think just a a couple of uh, misnomers that people across North Dakota have uh, on the size and magnitude of the industry in the state one in five North Dakotans who are employed work directly or indirectly for the oil and gas industry. 53 cents out of every dollar that the state of North Dakota takes in comes from oil and gas production taxes alone. Uh, Certainly you look at the funding mechanisms for for education, for water resources, uh, for highways, uh, for communities, uh, now tribal nations, uh, property tax relief, income tax cuts, all of those are derivatives off of our success in the oil and gas industry, really since the really cracking the code on the Bakken in 2006. Um, you know, we, we talk about the great things we've done in terms of, of revenues and opportunities, but really, Mike, you and I know that the greatest part about this Bakken resource in North Dakota is the ability 
to have our sons and daughters and, re, and the revitalization of North Dakota through careers and opportunities. And as we have proven, if you have those things in North Dakota, people will come. Uh, we just, we've had 40 school teachers here this week from across the state. And it's amazing to see the evolution of now. Many of them have worked in the oil patch, have family members. Certainly they see many, many of their students going to work in the oil and gas industry. So it's a vital part of North Dakota's economy. But instead of closing schools like we were doing in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, we're building schools, building opportunities, and places for children like yours and mine to uh, be able to stay and stay, live and raise their families in North Dakota. You know, to put a, a little bit more context to that, and, and this, is, uh, this is rough, the North Dakota uh, economy is about a 56 to almost $60 billion economy. And the three big drivers are agriculture, energy, and, and more specifically, big chunk of that is uh, oil and gas exploration production, and then tourism. So when you say 53 cents of every dollar in terms of the budget of North Dakota, that's a big number, a big, a big player for the state of North Dakota. And I echo what you said with regards to education and you know, the other important roles that uh, it has provided for all of us, our kids and our future, by the way. But before I, I, I get off of that, um, you just said we're opening schools instead of closing them. Another thing folks should appreciate is that before the oil boom, and before it was a big deal, started in the early 50s, but before it was a big, big deal, the state of North Dakota was in some ways dying. The greatest population number was back in the 1930s, and for every decade, through the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 90s, early 2000s, the population was going down in the state of North Dakota. And it's because of the Bakken, the explosion, the importance of it. Yeah, there were some challenges, too. I understand that. But because of that, this state exploded. Now we're somewhere around 775,000, 780,000. And a lot of that is in direct relationship to what you just dis uh, described, Ron. To kind of tee up where I, I'd like to take the next part of our discussion, as I have watched um, a lot of national news discussions regarding fossil fuels and this very rapid attempt to change the trajectory of the importance of fossil fuels, I'm somewhat dumbfounded in, I don't know if it's a deliberate attempt to not share this kind of information or maybe just a lack of, of having the information, which means some people are kind of ignorant to the facts. The direct connection to the country's entire economy and the influence of it in terms of it being a positive economy, you, if you take out fossil fuels, coal, oil, gas, you take that out of there, you cripple your economy, and that's, that's what's happening. A lot of people are blaming it on other factors, but I'm going to use this scenario just to describe, paint a picture on how important this is. 
in North Dakota, we have agriculture as you know, the other big industry. If you're a farmer, you want to grow wheat. You have to have fuel to work your land. You have to have fuel and fertilizer to put the crop in. When you take it off, you have to have fuel. When you transport it to wherever you're going to have it milled and whatever, you have to have um, fuel to do that. Then they have to transport that, which takes fuel to get that to some producer that's going to turn it into bread. Then they have to have some form of transportation to get it to the grocery store and, and so on and so forth. All of that requires at least today, some form of fossil fuel component. With that scenario, Ron, from your experience, how would you best describe the incredible importance of what your members do in oil and gas, not just in North Dakota, but the entire country? Mike, when you look at inflation and what we're all experiencing every day, there's literally just not an aspect of our life, whether it's the clothes we wear, the phones, the headphones you have on, the microphone, that really are not derivatives from oil and gas. 69% of our nation's energy source today, 69% comes from oil and gas. You add coal in, now you're almost at 80%. You cannot just magically replace displace, transform an economy. It, it has never happened. From, from the horse carriage to the, to the transportation of vehicles, all of those things have carried on for decades. And, you know, I look at this in complete contrast to what uh, many of these extremely uh, radical progressive agendas are that just want to eliminate fossil fuels at the destruction of our economy, by the way, uh, under the under the guise of climate, and when we look at the reductions and the important uh, emission reductions we're seeing in, in, in just what we've done in the Bakken in North Dakota and what we're doing with coal in North Dakota, they're no longer supportive of that. They want to eliminate it. They want to keep it in the ground. They want to end it. But I see this much more as a, not a transition away from fossil fuels, but a transition to all forms of energy a cleaner form of energy, and we know that in North Dakota, we are uniquely positioned, not only our geology, our, our makeup of a state that gets behind projects, get behind initiatives legislatively, uh, government-wise, community-wise, we can make a cleaner barrel of Bakken oil. We can make the cleanest barrel of oil in the world. I think we may already have it. We have to be able to quantify that, show that. Our environmental footprint today, Mike, just last time you were out in the oil patch, we went down two miles and out two miles. Now we're going down two miles and out three miles. Same well, <laughs> one well. Just think of the reduction of the footprint of the drilling of a new well, of all of the economic recovery you're going to get out of oil by going that third mile. Time after time, uh, we are seeing that, and we're going to do it. We, uh, The North Dakota legislature in the last session established a Clean Sustainable Energy Authority in one year, the projects that we have seen come forth in terms of reducing emission technologies. It's all about technology. The entire Bakken is now a technology play. Uh, we are being, you know, uh, poked at and, and jabbed at every single way you can imagine every day that tries to hamper and limit production. Despite our current energy crisis, I would call it, uh, in, a, in a scenario that anybody could have looked forward and seen. You know, when we come out of COVID, what's everybody going to do? They're going to want to travel. They're going to want to move. They're going to want to use energy. 
And yet, uh, the, the encouragement and the exploration and production worldwide of oil and gas, tremendously impacted by COVID. But since then, it's been a constant barrage of more regulations, less ability to finance projects, can't build pipelines, can't get permits. All of those things have really led us to the point we're at. And, and Americans know it. And they know that just 18 months ago, we were on a path to supply the world with energy. And what a great way to... Uh, eliminate concerns like Ukraine and, and Russia and other geopolitical concerns if we supply our allies and friends across the world with badly needed energy. And certainly Europe Europe is experiencing that right now and, and regretting some of their decisions to not only back off their own fossil fuels, but regrettably going to Russia instead of to America uh, to get their energy sources. But now in, in the United States, we're a bit hamstrung on our ability to provide that because you can't get the permits you can't get the pipelines. You can't get the facilities to export uh, natural gas to them. Thank you, Ron. And by the way, that there will be people that say that that's not true. Uh, they've heard people say there are 6,000, 9,000, whatever it is, permits sitting there. But between the regulatory framework that has been put in place, which makes it almost possible to push one through, we also have to understand that for the past few years, there are people that are elected that go to Washington. I don't need to mention any names. They're, they're, it's not that important. You know who they are. Their goal is to shut down the fossil. They have told they, they have told you we, our goal is to put you out of business. So if you're the person in charge of running the business, you're the CEO, the last thing you're going to do is make investments that are going to be stranded and put you out of business anyway. By the way, something that Ron mentioned moments ago regards to products that we use every single day. If you haven't done this, you should Google what are the products I use every day that have some kind of petroleum component to it. There's over 6,000 of them, everything from golf balls to dentures to eyewear to lip balm, makeup, uh, the list goes on and on, upholstery, clothing, and so on and so forth. Ron, a while ago, uh, from Davos, that World Economic Forum that I pay attention to because there are things that happen there that impact us. I say that tongue-in-cheek because of the, some of the purposes of that forum that I just fundamentally disagree with. But the uh, CEO of the Bank, uh, bank of America, largest bank in the country, uh, Brian Moynihan, was on a national news program talking about the discussion at Davos. And two things I picked up on. One, that pretty much agreement at Davos was the rush to change, this rush to what they're calling this transition, um, was a mistake. It should be far more incremental. I've always believed it's a 25, 30-year plan to... How, how we incrementally um, insert renewables into a fossil fuel world, by the way. And he also said you have to have a plan. And he specifically mentioned North Dakota. He mentioned we should all have a plan like North Dakota. That one, of the, one of the things he mentioned was the carbon neutrality goal that the governor has of 2030. When I hear things like that, I, I'm always curious. When we have a, a goal like that, what does your industry think about its role in helping facilitate moving that needle, if you will? 
Mike, I, I, I think that uh, North Dakota is the example. We've had the Empower Commission here for almost 15 years now. It's all of the energy sectors working together. And, and the key element of this whole aspect is affordable, reliable energy, all of the Belve Energy Policy. Renewables are an incredible, incredible asset, but they have to be supplementary because they're inter intermittent energy sources. We can, we can create 10 or 20 times the amount of wind, wind power we have in the state of North Dakota or solar power, but if the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine, I don't know about your house, but I want my electricity. And future generations, when you ask future generations about energy conservation and what are you going to give up, they look at you like in bewilderment. We are so energy rich and spoiled that they are so attached to energy, much more so than you were in when you grew up or I was when I grew up. These kids are attached to energy all the time, but they have a big disconnect for how it's how it's generated. And every every energy source at scale has significant challenges, whether it be environmental, whether it be where you where you dispose of turbine blades, doesn't matter. You want to talk about rare earth elements and, and what we need for battery power, 80% of, of some of those components are controlled by the country of China. Extremely, lithium, lithium mining is extremely intensive. I don't think we have any concept in this country how intensive it is and what it looks like over there. So to some extent, we are exporting our, our guilt in terms of energy production to other places where we can't see it. Part of the frustration of our administration going to OPEC, going to Venezuela and other places asking them, them to increase oil production. Meanwhile, we think we can do it in places like North Dakota, but you need the right policy, you need the right support. And that filters back down to employees, that filters back down to people that want to work in industry, financiers that want to finance projects, a long-term planning process that you talked about in those 9,000 leases, by the way, 9,000 leases is like, you know, 9,000 9, ideas out there. Once you have that idea, then you turn it into a permit and then you put it to a project and then you need the pipelines and you need all the infrastructure that goes with it. It takes a long time to develop an idea into a permit, into a project, into a well. And uh, roadblocks being put in place every week uh, make that further and further down the road. One of those roadblocks is the ban on public lands. I don't remember if it was on your website uh, or, or another, that, that that ban itself will cost uh, over the next 20 years us $670 billion. That, that Those are pretty stifling, restrictive uh, regulations that have a do two things. One, it cripples the current economy and it tells the uh, the CEO or the company that wants to invest in those leases we were just talking about, why, why would I do that? It's, it's making it cost prohibitive for me and I'm not a charity, so why would I do that? Ron, something I'm curious about, during the time that you've been the president of North Dakota Petroleum Council, other than the technological advancement that you just mentioned, go down two miles and take a right and go two, and now we can go three. What what are some of the other more significant changes or improvements you've seen in technology 
and, and one that also makes it uh, more environmentally friendly, if that's the right way to say it. Well, Mike, I have a lot of those, and it, it's such a great question that it, it kind of makes me giggle almost because the uniqueness about the Bakken is, if you recall, when the Bakken took off, it was 2000 and really nine and 10 when things really struck and, and the world woke up. We were, in a, we were in a worldwide recession. All of the ideas came here. You, you know this very well as your leadership in the city of Bismarck, and, and all the great minds of the world came here. So I kind of got to be the conduit to a lot of these folks who came in with all of the great ideas, and, and it, it's really, truly remarkable uh, on the things that we saw, but just just two that are so simplistic that, that I think you know everybody gets. I had a group of, of folks show up at my office from Texas telling me that, you remember, thousands of trucks everywhere across the Bakken, tens of thousands of trucks creating, destroying roads, accidents, lives. Um, I think I lost many years off my life just worrying about truck accidents and things on, on an infrastructure that wasn't designed for it. These, these characters showed up and said, you know, we're going we're gonna to lay these, these flat water transfer lines all over the Bakken, and instead of moving water by truck for well completions, we're going to move it by water transfer lines. And I laughed out loud. I said, it gets 30 below here. How are you going to move water? And you know what? It turns out if you keep water moving in a, in a, in a rubber hose, it doesn't freeze. They have moved water all over the Bakken. They have taken tens of thousands of trucks off the roads uh, weekly, saved thousands and thousands of lives. And it was just a group of folks that showed up here and, and told us we can do this. And I, I thought, no way, okay, they can't do that. Um, <laughs> you know, another, another just an incredible transformation happened more recently when the Silicon Valley guy showed up and said, you know, you've got all these well sites out there with flares on them. And they might be because of the lake, might can't be able to get across the, across uh, the train, it might be because of a, you can't get a federal easement to get a pipeline in there. But anyways, you, you've got oil wells that you can't either drill or, or they're flaring natural gas, which we all hate flaring of natural gas, but you gotta understand the resource before you can get the investment by somebody else to come in and get the gas. They said, we're gonna put these, these servers, these computer servers out there on these well pads and we're going to take that flare gas, we're going to run it into this pipeline right across the pad, 30, 40 feet away, and we're going to power up these servers, and then they're going to power up the cloud, and Google and Bitcoin and all these folks are going to buy that power from the cloud rather than having it run into an already full natural gas processing system where we can't get pipes. Sure enough, they've done it. Now the world knows about it. And I've got so many examples like this. It, it's actually... Uh, a really fun question for me, and I could go on and on. And maybe one more is that the transformation that I have seen in the industry and the CEOs over the last three years in terms of their focus on reducing emissions and the, the environmental social governance requirements that really were dr driven by the financial sector uh, is, is simply amazing. And it, it's... It's probably impacted our production of oil in America fairly substantially because producers today will not produce un unless they've got their infrastructure in place. And sometimes on the exploration side, you need to kind of cut that, cut that cord a little bit and, and go get it. But just a complete transformation 
which you know was passed on down to every staff member on on the the environmental record, their environmental sustainability, truly truly amazing. Uh, but sadly, the other side doesn't really care about that when it gets right down to it. And now the new one is going to be what we do with carbon in North Dakota and, and the Bakken and uh, the opportunities for the coal industry, the cop- opportunities for the ethanol industry. We've got a geological jackpot in North Dakota and a regulatory system that's ahead of the federal government. We, we've got an opportunity here to really have an impact on on some of these greenhouse gases, you know, which uh, I think is important to reduce them. It's not as important that we crumble our economy and and take our ability to impact world wars off the table, but it's important that we continue to improve on our cleanliness of our energy sources. As I was just watching you, Ron, I said to myself, I really should activate my YouTube channel and push out video and audio because you got so excited. You're like a kid to candy jar or at the end of a football game in Frisco, Texas, where the Bison are always winning. You, you, were, you were that wrapped up, that excited, you, the smile on your face. It was just precious to see that. <laughs> um, the, the, this, this light switch approach to trying to shut down the industry, as, as you sit with your, your colleagues and you're sitting around a table trying to, let me put it, I mean, that's a dumb question the way I was going to ask it. Does it matter to you currently what's happening in Washington with regards to the industry? Or my purpose of the question is, it, you want to stay focused on the, the, the goal and the mission. And while that's a distraction, you, you and your, your members still have to stay focused, right? Because in a way, you can't do anything about it at, at the current time. Well, you do, Mike. And I, I think the frustration is that, you know, despite the rhetoric, you see day after day the roadblocks. And, and I get to see them firsthand. And the impacts on Americans and you know, I've, I've been out giving speeches and, and somebody might say, well, if you look at inflation, you know, uh, the price of gasoline today versus what it was in, you know, 1995, you know, it's it's where it should be. And I'll just tell you, Americans do not believe that. The American consumers are very savvy and they know that we don't have to have $5 gasoline. And to some extent, I feel that we're being conditioned for six to eight dollar gasoline because that's the only way it makes that agenda work. And I'm typically not a conspiracy theorist, but uh, I will tell you that energy policy matters. Words matter. Words from leadership matter, and those things have a a huge uh, tumbling effect down the road, even further than where we are today. Um, I think it's it's frankly frightening. To think about, you know, let, let's just throw out the whole energy, you know, producing state versus consuming state concept. And it, the consuming states are going to, those are the people that have to rise up and let their elected officials understand that, you know, energy matters. But when you look at the incredible impacts to a North Dakota economy, and, and when I say economy, I'm just not talking dollars and cents. I'm talking about the people who live here and work here and and we have an 800-year supply of coal in North Dakota. We have a, a top 10 oil field in the world 
in North Dakota. So for for people across uh, other states to tell us that that we shouldn't be producing that using that coal or producing that oil or that natural gas and the devastating effect it would have on energy producing rural economies and then what that means to us in terms of agriculture and the cost that you you uh, laid out um, it's quite frightening uh, that we have lost that touch in this country and the big city folks not grasping how energy and food are made and derived and how important it is for us to do it. But not only that, for a large percentage of our population in many states uh, who make a living off this, to provide them that affordable, reliable food source or energy source every day. It, we, are headed, we are headed in a path that maybe we've got a chance to change that, that outlook going forward with the, what we're experiencing today because I think American consumers get it. Here's another example of of what's really happening and why what you just said is so important, where we might be being conditioned to accept gas at six or eight bucks a gallon, whatever it is, which is not sustainable. It, that is not sustainable, by the way, and here's here's why. And, and what I'm going to share is a, another way to absolutely – out-of-pocket discount all the other sources of blame where, we, where this has been put incorrectly, by the way. I talked to, uh, before we moved from Bismarck, I talked to a, a farmer that's very well known in the Bismarck-Mandan area, and I asked him how it's going. So this would have been late May, early June. And he said, you know, it's okay. It's been wet. We're finally through that. We're getting kind of caught up. And I asked him, I said, what are the costs like? Ronnie put his head down. He looked at the ground. He brought it back up. And he said, Mike, just today, I had my uh, provider come out with the fuel that I need to uh, work my property. That's not the right way to say it. It was $17,000. And I will have to do that again in another month. I said, what was it like two years ago? It was $7,000. So from $7,000 to $17,000. And if that were to stay the course, you just you just... Put, connect all the dots. What that means is that this inflation that we're seeing now would continue. And even if the government tries to pump more money into the, the marketplace, that creates even more inflation. Here's one thing I've learned uh, over the years is that, generally speaking, generally speaking, capitalism solves problems. Because capital people, people that are in the business of running enterprise, they do it for a profit, and they also understand how to minimize risk and reduce expenses. Government creates problems. So just, just look at where we have a government that runs, we're operating at a deficit. You, you can't do that in business. You can't, you can't do that if you're the CEO of a petroleum company, or you can't do that if you're a farmer. You just can't continue to do that. Ron, when, um, 
when you look in if you look down the road where and let's say we resolve some of these challenges that we have with regards to inflation negative impacts on the economy etc cetera, etc cetera. where do you see north dakota's role over the course of the next 5 to 10 years and beyond in providing uh, uh, in providing a real sustain, sustainable long-term uh, energy source for the not just North Dakota but for the country. Where do you see our role, Mike? You left a you left a lot of questions out there. Um, I'll just back up a minute and okay. when you go to fill up your tank next time, your gas tank. Watch the people at the other pumps. Watch, watch their faces. Watch their, their actions. American consumers are not happy. Uh, gasoline is a grudge purchase. You'll go buy a $4 cup of Starbucks coffee without a problem. But I tell you what, you, you look at people, they know that's their direct disposable income at a, at a higher than inflated cost going in. You can choose not to have you know, dinner at a certain place and find a cheaper option. There's no cheaper option when it comes to fueling. And, and the farmers not only have that for their fuel costs, but their, their input costs for, for fertilizer. And now you want to talk about something that's really crazy, go look at, at their chemicals, uh, Roundup and those things, if they can even get them. So, um, and of course, this is all going to come back to us in the cost of bread, the cost of every, all those things. So I, I think there's, there's a real serious... Uh, discussion that that's taking place at every home and every you know if you want to really see how serious ask your watch your kids when they got to go fill up their gas tank from home and how if they're asking mom or dad to help them every time because they certainly they they know it um i i believe that north dakota is is so uniquely positioned today to be the leader in this transition to a cleaner form of all of all of the energy sources and and consolidation of you look in Jamestown, the new soybean crushing plant, working with ADM, work, working with Marathon Petroleum, our, our state's uh, only oil refiner, taking those soybeans to Dickinson, North Dakota, turning them into a a, a biodiesel that's really going to go to California to feed a a super crazy California market that pays pays incredibly large amounts of money for you know a low low carbon fuel, uh, which that would be. So North Dakota is is going to be in this position where if if done right and under the right policy framework, we can be once again the leader in the form of how you how you transform all energy sources. Because I think our sons and daughters and and the people across this country want a cleaner form of energy. They're not going to do it at 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 the destruction of their entire economy over the longer term. We're going to see bits and pieces in, in this, but energy policy matters. And you are right, supply and demand and a free market generally will push money into those commodities. If, if you're short of corn, guess what? Farmers will grow more corn. Traditionally, oil prices go up. What happens? More people go out and look for oil. But today, there's some, some false suppressions on that ability to get financing because the big banks aren't, aren't wanting to finance fossil fuels. Despite the potential for, for a revenue return, 
they're not financing projects. That, that all changes the charts in terms of supply and demand. When you take away the incentive to, to generate income by putting more money into corn or putting more money into oil wells, now, now you've changed the curve. That's scary. Ron, well, often we hear talking heads talk about how we have subsidized the oil business. And I, I don't know what they mean when they say that. And by the way, I'm an electric vehicle fan. I don't own one uh, because for me, living in North Dakota, uh, when it gets to 30 below, um, I'm just thinking that's not the best choice for me to have an electric vehicle. I, I kind of like the gas-guzzling Sequoia that I have right now. And it costs me a lot of money currently to fill that puppy up. But I look at what we're doing to the EV industry. On the average, we sell about 16 million new cars a year in our country. Last year, we sold about 600,000 electric vehicles. And we have just pumped a boatload of money into the economy because we're running a deficit to put electric charging stations all over the country, which means we're all paying for it. And then we have income tax credit, which means we're helping pay for the vehicles that are being purchased. I understand the uh, interest and desire to have elect electrified transportation. I mean, I get it, but that's a, a really big way of subsidizing an industry. Would you explain to me how we subsidize the oil industry? Well, I think that's a great mystery to me too, Mike. Uh, you know, somehow when the oil and gas industry uh, can deduct the costs of, of, of the very thing that every other business sector in America uh, deducts, it's a subsidy. And of course, the scalability of, of the oil and gas industry is, is huge, so uh, those numbers get big. But there, there, you, you know in North Dakota, there's no such thing as a subsidy uh, of the oil and gas industry. Uh, we might pay a, a lesser tax at times to incentivize something, but that's a gross production tax. So you don't pay, uh, you pay, if you sell a barrel of oil for $90, you pay 10% of the $90, not 10% of the you know $21 that you might profit. And then of course you pay corporate income tax on the $21 of profit. So you pay a gross production tax and extraction tax then you pay, then you get to pay your corporate tax off of your actual earnings. So uh, truly, uh, that that is a myth that has been generated, and I am not aware of anything that I would consider a subsidy. Uh, you know, now you are seeing uh, big peer subsidies into, into carbon storage, and I think those are policy decisions, but you know, Canada has put a 20 cent a gallon tax on it. Go to Ca go to Canada and fill your gas tank, by the way, right now. I was up there uh, earlier this month, and it, it was almost $7 a gallon. Frightening. And then wow. <laughs> and then you you go up into the northern country, and they got all the trees and all the all the land that's not used, which is really a carbon sink. So um, really, really scary. Uh, you know, electric vehicles at this point, uh, you know, love your electric vehicle because it's powered by coal. Or natural gas, <laughs> and as we're isn't it ironic that uh, as we're discussing brownouts across America, you know we're we're trying to use more electricity. There are a lot of challenges. The electric vehicle industry has a big, big 
big, big challenge ahead of them. And of course, the cost of just a battery that goes in them has, has gone up immensely. And it, it seems like the more you try to subsidize that, that, that vehicle, the more the costs of the vehicle go up and just the replacement costs. And Mike, I, I've got seven vehicles at my home and there's not one of them that's uh, very new. Some are 20 years old. Most are five or 10 years old. How many, how many electrical vehicle, used electric vehicles uh, can I buy? I usually spend between, you know, somewhere between twelve dollars and $18,000 for a vehicle. Uh, I can buy a lot of that gas for the cost. Plus, I got to prepare, prep my home for the electric vehicles. And I, I could really, I think there are very good places for electric vehicles, maybe city buses, things like that. But we have to be careful not to, not to, uh, we will crush uh, our abilities to consume electricity in this country if we make that conversion too quick and we oversubsidize it. Ron, is there, um, yeah, oversubsidize it because we're heavily subsidizing already. Is is there fear versus concern in, in the your organization in terms of the people that you represent? And maybe you don't want to answer that question. Or is there more concern versus fear with regards to where we're going? And if we don't, you know, course correct, because I think I think we have to. Uh, what that means long-term for uh, the folks that you work with. I wouldn't really call it fear. Uh, I, I think I would call it great concerns about the communications that continue to demonize the incredible value that these resources provide all of us on every given day and the ramifications uh, beyond beyond what we see today in terms of you just don't turn the switch on. You know, as soon as gas prices went to a certain point, what happened? It was like, oh, you know, how quickly can we can we make this happen in North Dakota? Meanwhile, all the policy directives behind the scenes are the other direction. There is no magic switch here. These are long-term planned investments that require everything from workforce to inputs to pipelines, to infrastructure, uh, in the in the in the field, delivering that gasoline to the to the very pumps that you use uh, as often as you fill up gasoline, but back back to the investors, the financiers, the people that want to work in these industries, that would be my concern. And certainly, I think there should be a bit of fear. Um, I just heard today the state of Illinois, their legislature passed a bill that prohibits the production of fossil fuels after like 2050. Well, Illinois has an oil, an oil and gas field. So now you have just basically zeroed out the value of minerals. There are, I'm telling you, in North Dakota, there are hundreds of thousands of mineral owners that derive billions of dollars a year from the production of, of oil and natural gas and, and let alone coal. That now you have zeroed out that family asset Oh man! Everything in this country oh, is either made from something you produce underneath the ground, or you grow on top of the ground. Where where else does it come from, really? Man, oh man, it's just crazy. Early in our discussion, you mentioned that one of five people in North Dakota 
is uh, directly or indirectly employed as a result of uh, oil and gas industry. I paraphrase what you said, but I think that's what you said. Do you have any idea what that is nationally? What, what What's the number of people that uh, are employed as a result of, you know, oil, gas production, coal, you know, the fossil fuel industry? Do you have any idea what that is? I think it's about 9 million people. It's a big number. Yeah, that that's a big number. That That would probably be 9 million direct jobs. Yeah. Ron, if you had a magic wand, you could wave over the heads of these folks that are absolutely positively, they are anti-fossil fuels for, for whatever reason. And they really do want to end the fossil fuel industry. What's the one thing, if you could wave a magic wand over the head, what's the one thing you'd really want them to know about the importance of the industry? After I whacked them once with it, or? <laughs> you could do that, too. Which would be, wake up, come on. You know what? I, there's one thing about people with that mantra. Don't use the product. Because it's become big business, Mike. Big, big business like we have no idea so if you're that adamant then get get off it don't use it now if people think about that oh not going to drive my car not going to fly an airplane oh can i use my phone hmm. all the all the 6000 products i'm not going to am i going to Flying a jet around the country and around the world advocating against oil and gas? Am I going to? Because if you're that big of an advocate, then it means that you should not be doing it. About the only person I know of that was that off the grid was Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> Sorry, but that's about right. the only guy I can, the only person I can think of that was legitimately old, totally off the grid. There are millions of people in this in this world of ours that wake up every day without energy. They may cook their food with dung. They they may they and their families go to bed freezing at night in third third world countries that you know, our ability to supply them with, with natural gas, a clean fuel. Can you imagine breathing that in, in your hut, in your whatever you're living in? And, you know, the, the evolution of, of the utilization of the derivatives off of oil and natural gas saved lives, thousands of lives. I mean, we are so much healthier today than, than we were in previous generations and a lot of that is the, the ability to live in the desert, cooling, the ability to live in North Dakota, this, this particularly this winter, right? Heating, but uh, not to mention the ability of us to uh, move around this country uh, freely and independently. These are all things that should be considered because in a scenario where we begin to limit the use, now we begin making real choices. Hmm. You just made me think of a book I I read. I've reached out to the fellow too, uh, 
name of the book is The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And until I read that book, it I didn't think about the maybe a billion people. It's it's a big number. People that live in countries where they're not they don't have the advantages that we do. How much they depend on fossil fuels to refrigerate medication that their life depends on it. And without that, they're 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 in real trouble. When we stop and think about how important fossil fuels are at this point in time, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. Life depends on it, quite frankly. Another magic wand question. For the folks that um, uh, don't embrace this anti-fossil fuel philosophy and lifestyle, folks that believe it, 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 it's an important contributor to their life, to their economy, to our country. What's the one thing that you want them to know about um, the future of the fossil fuel industry in our country? It's completely a technology industry at this point. Uh, we are getting better and better uh, in the fossil fuel utilization today and the way we the way we are making the energy critical energy sources that we all rely on so heavily every day are getting cleaner and cleaner. And there's always room for improvement. We need the bright minds of the future to continue to be the petroleum engineers and the geologists to uncover those resources. And, you know, with the best technology in the world, Mike, the brightest minds of the world, we're going to get about uh, 16 out of every 100 barrels of oil out of the pocket. So we're going to leave somewhere around 84% of the oil still in place. The size of the prize and the bright minds of the world will figure out how to get For every 1% more, it's a billion barrels of oil. So, uh, you know, whose who's son or daughter is going to figure that out? And But it's all about technology. you, you got to encourage investment. you got to encourage those those great young minds to continue. Now we're going to, we're going to continue to move down a path of, of other alternative supplemental energy sources. If we do it smart, if we don't, then we're going to, then we're going to see scale challenges with those. And we've seen a little bit of that with wind in North Dakota. I've been a, I've been a huge supporter of wind because I think it's a great supplemental uh, energy source. Uh, obviously it's, it's, you know, we've allowed some, some things for wind that have put the put the coal facilities at a tremendous disadvantage, and I, I think that that was a mistake, frankly, and uh, giving them you know override power on on power you know the ability to put your wind on prior to the coal coal plants on a power line, you know some of the some of the subsidies some of those things once they got on their feet going we should allow them to compete a little more fairly to keep those plants running efficiently and effectively so. Uh, we have to be very cautious of that because that's what happens when you economically disadvantage the investment over here versus the investment over there. And that's what kind of what's happened to the utilities. And then you get activists involved. So uh, we have to be careful and we have to be smart, but we have to recognize the need and have those discussions around the dinner table. Yeah. Ron, thank you so much. Boy, I, every time I've, listen to you. I learned so much. I appreciate what you're doing and 
in your role in this, for the industry and the state. It's so important. Uh, I, I'm a big believer in what you're doing and what your uh, your your members do. Appreciate you a lot. What's a lot? Anything you want to share before I cut you off here, Mike? I, uh, you know, the support for oil and gas and, and frankly coal across the state of North Dakota and all energy sources is still at a super high number, and we really, as a state, this is a state issue. It's not an individual oil producer or a or a McKenzie County, which happens to be the largest you know, oil producing county in America, the fastest growing county in America. Those aren't, those aren't just, uh, you know, uh, by mystery, by, by any means, right? People that came here, people invested here, but um, we need to all, all work together in this fashion. We need to be steadfast uh, in our process. And at the end of the day, I, I think that, you know, we, we can't rely on elections to swing policy. We need to find more common ground across all sides of the aisle because these are long-term investments. And if you think that the pendulum is going to swing the other direction in November, you know, it's it's only going to swing this way for one house of the Congress. You still have the agencies. We just have to find and get more people on the same page going to the same, the same direction because uh, it's a long, hard road if we do this every other election. Now, I'm going to close with this, Ron. We thank you for saying it that way. I'm, well, here's what I heard: we're all in this together. We got to figure out a way to make this work. Uh, my wife last night told me that we spent 800 bucks on gas this month. 800 bucks compared to normally it's about 400. That's a big deal. We're okay. Uh, there are a lot of people that that's crippling. That's absolutely crippling. And um, our, our future depends on a very significant role, fossil fuels playing a part. I appreciate what you're doing, Ron. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll probably see a football game maybe this fall, huh? Hey, I, I'm, uh, I'm available that day, so uh, should, should be a good one. So thanks, Mike. Have a great day. Thank, Happy Fourth of July. Thank you, Ron. Remember on the Fourth of July, all that energy consumption being utilized out there and how important it is. There you go. Hey, thank you so much, Ron. All right, bye.